you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, do not break your oath. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here today. My name is Randy Hunt, and I'm on staff here at uh, LAFC. And this morning, I uh, have the privilege of just being able to take a look at a passage in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. They have uh, Bibles available to give you. If you did not come with one, feel free to take that home with you as a gift from us. And uh, let it become real food to your soul and your life as you live for him. You know, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount and uh, where Jesus is starting to tell us some additional things on how to live life. And Matthew 520, when Tony started this, he alluded to the fact that Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what you see is Jesus contrasting the transformational righteousness of the kingdom with just mere legalistic morality that is taught and lived by the Pharisees. Last week, Matt touched on the mini-series that... uh, comes from the Sermon on the Mount and addressing six times that Jesus starts each point with saying, you've heard that it was said, followed by Jesus saying, but I tell you the truth. When Jesus says that it was said, he's not talking about uh, the Old Testament. What he's doing is, is addressing the way, the interpretation that the religious leaders are making regarding certain laws in the Old Testament. And what they've done is that they've turned uh, God's covenant of grace into a covenant of works. So Jesus wants us to realize that living kingdom life takes a whole lot more than external conformity to a set of religious standards. It has to go deeper than that. So as we uh, look at our text today, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 37. Beginning with verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. 
either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. As you read through the Bible, you start to see words like vow and covenant and oaths and honesty and truthfulness. So for the sake of, of helping us to see the framework of what Jesus is talking about, I think it's important for us just to readdress kind of what are these words that are being used. A vow is a personal promise to perform some act. Those are the things we do at weddings, as an example. A covenant is a legal binding promise, an agreement to do or not do a particular thing. When we bought our house here in, um, in Mannheim, one of the things that we had to sign was an HOA agreement of what we would do and not do to our house or outside of our house. Oaths are promises that are made before authorities and serve as objective guarantees of what is promised. An example of an oath would be when somebody is testifying in a court, they're asked to tell the truth, nothing but the truth. But there's another word called honesty that often appears that quickly we can read through it and forget that there is some real teeth in what the word honesty means. Because honesty is truthfulness. An honest person attempts to make accurate, trustworthy statements about life, about self, about others, and about God. An honest person attempts to present himself or herself just as they are and tell others the truth about themselves. So as we begin to look at verses 33 through 37, we will go back to verse 31 and 32 at the end. But in verse 33, it says, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you've made to the Lord. So let me help us to see some Old Testament passages that builds up what the uh, religious teachers and leaders of that day were talking about. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 17, it says, Do not plot evil against your neighbor, and do not love to swear falsely, for I hate all this, declares the Lord. Here you see Zechariah emphasizing the fact that God hates false oaths. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 5, it says it's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Then in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Then finally, in De- Deuteronomy 23, verses 23, 21 to 23, it says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. So whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord, your God, with your own mouth. Now let me say that again. I want you to 
I want you to feel the teeth that is being said here. Whatever your lips utter you must, whatever your lips utter you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord, to the Lord God with your mouth. Now, think of that for a minute. Any word that I speak comes from the Lord. Really? No. Because it says out of the heart of man flows unclean things. So it's why another place in Scripture that it talks about in James when it says that we should uh, be swift to listen and slow to speak. Because sometimes the things we say are not accurate. They're not true. And so these religious leaders were allowing the swearing of oaths on other things as a way of cementing agreements, such as swearing by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or by their own life. As long as God's name was invoked, they were free to break them and held blameless. Jesus, on the other hand, says, oaths shouldn't be necessary. Don't swear at all. For Jesus clarifying that there are no levels of truthfulness for a Christian. When you swear by heaven, it's God's. When you swear by the earth, earth, it's God's. When you swear by your own life, it's God's. So whether or not you say something is in, God, is in God's name, it is. You're never out of God's presence. So everything you say and do... You're always standing before God. Then every single thing you say is as binding as if you did it under oath. That's pretty weighty. In verse 37, it says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So what is Jesus meaning here in this text? He's saying, if you say yes... Let it really be yes. Don't say yes here, but live like no over here. Don't say yes to this group and no to this group. If you say yes, let your yes be yes. Are you a person of integrity? If you are not a person of integrity, then your word cannot be trusted. Because people will never know what's really true. So a person who lacks integrity creates three massive problems. The first is this. It destroys human community. Imagine a community with me if there were no one you could trust. No one that you could trust to keep a promise. In 1993, I made my first trip to a communist country. And I was shocked that you really couldn't trust what was being said. How they were saying or what they were saying was not really true. Matter of fact, when I heard someone who was quite, quite commonly, when I'd ask him, is there a problem? He would say, no, no problem. But the look in his face said otherwise. And I started to realize 
that lying was a way of surviving. You had to protect yourself. Can you imagine what it would be like if a church or a community like Lidditz was such a community that you could not trust anything anybody said or did? A community where no partner could ever bank on the loyalty of another. Or a community where no one could make decisions and assurance of having the facts in hand. Every single time, every single time that I engage with a lack of integrity, it's eating away at the fabric of community. It also destroys human identity. Every time you do anything that lacks integrity, you're also eating away at human identity. Who are you really? We happen to live in a society, a culture, where there are two identities that are often driven. I'll call it public identity and private identity. In a public identity, you are able to put on social media those things that you want people to think of you, whether it's true or not. But then in private, who are you then? Are you like what you portray in public or are you different? And here's a battle. I often hear kids say, you know, our, not, not every kid, but I, I just hear once in a while this phrase being used. My parents, they're one thing at church, but, it's, but something else when they're at home. And I wonder, what are we going to build in our society if we live by two identities? That we're never known by who we are at in public, as well as who we are in private. But it also destroys human dignity when I'm not being uh, living a life of integrity. When I lie to someone, I'm exploiting them. When I begin to find it easier to say what the other person wants to hear, when we're face-to-face, but then I reveal my real intentions and feelings through my actions, I'm exploiting them. You're really not allowing them to see the real you. You're withholding the grasp of reality that they need to have as human beings. These lies that we sometimes can say, I don't think we all just go out and say, well, I'm just going to intentionally lie. But sometimes there are statements that we, we say that really we don't mean what we're saying. Let me give you some examples. When you say, I'll pray for you. That's a nice Christian phrase, isn't it? But even non-Christians say, I'll pray for you. Maybe you pray for them right then, but then you forget about it. And maybe a month later, they come up and they say to you, boy, I really appreciate your prayers because it really helped me. What are you going to say at that time? If you only prayed one time? Oh, no, hold on, hold on. I just prayed once. 
No, I think to save our self-embarrassment, we just find it easier to say, well, thank you. But what's reality? Then here's another one. I, I think that sometimes we have a tendency to use things like, well, let's get together. You ever heard that one? Probably all of us in this room have done that. We conclude our conversation with somebody by saying, we ought to get together. But let's say that we're now six months into this. About every time you see each other, you say, well, let's get together. And you still are not getting together. What does that say to the other person? You don't mean that. You don't want to come. Because you keep telling me you want to get together, but we just don't. Or how about this? <laughs> how are you? Do you know, it's, it's almost a way to start a conversation, isn't it? When you see somebody, how are you? I addressed this in the first service. Afterwards, I noticed twice, I said to somebody I saw, how are you? It's, it's so common. But are we really wanting that person to tell us exactly what's going on? Probably not. So I wonder how we could say that. How are you? And say it in such a way that we really mean what we're saying. Here's another one. And it's funny how people will say this. Well, let me be honest. Well, then, was everything you just saying, was it not true? You know, why, why are you saying be honest or honestly? Because that just sets people up to believe that a lot of things you say may not be true. Or we could use to be truthful. Well, it still says the same thing. Am I truthful all the time, or am I just now about ready to tell you something that's truthful? Let me give you a tough one. How many promises have you made to people that you still haven't fulfilled them? I'll give you a story I read. A true story. A little boy was told by his father, son, as soon as I get home from work, I'm going to take you fishing. So the little boy was all excited. Daddy's going to take him fishing. So about mid-afternoon, he gets his little tackle box and his fishing pole, and he goes out and sits on the porch because he just can't wait for his dad to get home. He sits there, and he sits there, and it's beyond the time that his dad normally comes home. His mother comes out and sees him sitting on the porch and said, son, what are you doing? Waiting for daddy. He said he's going to take me fishing. He's promised he'd take me fishing. She said, son, I just got a call from him about an hour ago. He's not going to be home till late tonight. When he finally got home, he never said anything to his son about how he had made a promise. Let's reschedule. 30 years later, this young boy is now a man. And he said, 
I'm still waiting to go fishing with my dad. We can make a lot of promises. But are we, is our word true? There are going to be times when I know we work or life, things get in our way and we just can't live up to them. But why not be honest enough to say, I'm sorry that I wasn't able to take you fishing or whatever it may be. Or as a couple, let's do a weekend to get away. Let's do it this next week. But then work, something happens at work that we can't. And don't just go on with life and think that everything's okay. Stop. Think about it. Because somebody is hanging on your word. So when I think of what Jesus is saying, when he simply say yes or no, I really see Jesus clarifying that there are no levels of truthfulness. I see Jesus saying, you're always under oath. Everything you say is truthful, as if you're swearing on a stack of Bibles. You need to see that everything you say is under oath because God is before you. Here's a challenging question. If you knew everything you said was being recorded and then put on social media for everybody to see, would it make a difference how you spoke to people and how you presented yourself? I'm pretty confident that we would change something. Well, Jesus would say to us, why would you change? Because I'm still here regardless. You need to make sure that you're being this person of integrity. But here is the problem. It's our sinful, wicked heart that desires to have its way. And it gets in the way. Because there's only one who's been a person of their word. Only one who has lived with such integrity and his name is Jesus. So the most important vow that I realized that I have ever made happened 51 years ago. Next month. When I stood facing my bride, Leanne, who's down here in the front, I said to her on that day that I would commit myself completely to her and would take full responsibility for the necessities of her life. I would at all times be truthful with her, would share my life completely with her, would be sensitive to her deepest needs and tenderly caring for her in every way possible, and that I would love her and place our relationship with her above all other human relationships. Then the pastor said, if so, answer, I will. I will. Some people, when they get to that part, they just look at, yeah. But then the pastor turned to her and said that, and that was our intent. Our intent for what marriage would be like. Then when we held hands and we faced each other and we said our vows. I wrote down my vows this week, um, and I must admit I felt really convicted. 
Because I realize how I haven't been a person of my word all the time. How sometimes I take for granted the person I married, the person I stood in front of and committed these things to her. But here's what I said. I, Randy, take you, Leanne, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. According to God's holy ordinance, and thereto pledge thee my faith. Then Leanne stated her vows to me. And for 51 years, we have faced the storms of marriage and we've held to our vows that we said to each other, even though sometimes they're loose. Before we look at verses 31 to 32, where Jesus is addressing divorce. Let me say this and be very clear. I'm not providing a complete teaching on divorce. There's not enough time for that. However, there is a thread that goes through these seven verses that is applicable to this situation. When I stood with Leanne at our wedding... I was stating publicly before those in attendance and before God, even though at that point I didn't know that, that I was standing before God because I was not a Christian yet. I didn't realize that I was totally committing my life to her till death do us part. Wasn't really anchored on that. To make that vow we made work. It would only work if both of us, not just one of us, now hear me on that, not if marriage would work if both of us worked it out. It's, it's marriage would only last or continue as long as we both worked on our word together. Our sin, our self-centeredness can really cause severe damage in a marriage. If we don't live our lives in a marriage with integrity, when we're not loyal, when I live one way publicly and another way privately, when I'm not being honest, a marriage can be destroyed. So as we look at verses 31 to 32, it says, he, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a credit, a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, Jesus said, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is Jesus, where is he taking the teaching, what they have said, versus now what he's going to say? Go turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. You'll find the, in the law where it addresses the subject of divorce. Because Jesus would, when asked sometimes about divorce, he said it was Moses permitted it because of the hardness of their heart. And beginning with verse 1, it says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, 
and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her on her way from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So Jesus in this is addressing what the religious leaders have been teaching, what they're teaching from. What you and I need to understand is that there were two particular schools, rabbinical schools, with two different thoughts about what was being said in Deuteronomy 24. One particular school interpreted the word indecent to be any matter where the husband found his wife to be displeasing. If he found something displeasing, he could divorce her. That's pretty easy to do. Because isn't there a lot of things that you and I don't like about each other sometimes? But in this particular school of thought, it would, it, if you found anything displeasing, it was grounds for divorce. And then you look at another school, the school, uh, well, that, that school was the school of Hillel. The school of Shema was, interpreted the word indecent to be adultery. So Jesus knew that the rabbis were arguing over whether divorce could be allowed in certain situations. I think Jesus is more concerned about defending the creation and the the creation ordinance of marriage against those who trivialized it. Though not directly addressed, Jesus is also wanting to protect the woman. Because in that culture, that, the women were looked more like property. Virginity was important. And so she could quickly be ruined by, by this husband's decision. But also at the same time, if she's divorced, it's how then she's looked at. That's how she becomes that victim. Because now how is she going to provide for everyone if... She does not have a husband to provide. I think Jesus comes to the heart of what is addressed concerning divorce and marriage. And he takes us right to the creation ordinance of marriage that's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The word united or the word cleave means make a covenant. It means to make a public vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment. I think Jesus is addressing that divorce is sometimes maybe the only way to survive. And when adultery occurs, the one flesh relationship that is a sacred bond is smashed because of reckless selfishness. 
Adultery can bring misery at many levels. It brings shame to the adulterer. It introduces betrayal into the, to his legacy or her legacy. It shows your children that your personal pleasure is more important than their security. It brings sorrow even to the Christian community. Divorce is an amputation. God says marriage joins two people together and creates one flesh. And the longer that we are together, the more difficult it is to pick apart the threads of you and me. When divorce occurs, there's always a little bit less of you, a piece of you that can never claim back, you can never claim back as your own. You may have heard that someone who has a limb amputated can experience phantom pains. Phantom pains can happen with divorce. It's painful. It hurts. That pain can last a long time. But divorce can happen. It does happen. And it can be survived. When God created marriage, he intended it to be permanent. He wanted to protect a husband or a wife from the pains of divorce. A divorce was just not a part of his original idea. But because we live in a sinful world, God makes allowances because sinful people do sinful things. Those sinful things that begin when we're not living with integrity before each other. When one gives reason to be not trusted, when you begin to lie or cheat or break promises, you are no longer known as the person of your word. So what do I do? You know, when I go back and I think about those vows I made to my wife, did I really mean that? Am I really a person of my word? So what do I do? I realize I'm not doing too well at this. The door of honesty is repentance. It's recognizing what Jesus did for us. It's embracing the gospel that is given to us by grace. When Jesus died on the cross, when he looked into your life and heart and he saw the worst, he saw everything about you, but he loved you anyway. Jesus was the only one who was completely honest. He lived what I couldn't do on my own. So if you're going to become a person of integrity, it begins with admitting your dishonesty. Admit you don't like truth. Admit that you have a tendency to run from reality. Admit you lie. And come to Christ and say, Lord, be my Savior. Make me a person of integrity so that my yes will be yes and my no will be really no. Lord, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. If you said something to someone this week that wasn't true, you are not being honest. Ask God to help you. 
and go and set things straight with the person that you were dishonest with. You're feeling the pain of divorce. Acknowledge God as your healer. Because of Jesus, we are forgiven, even when it's our fault. Ask God to help help you to forgive yourself and to grow in his love in your life. Let's pray. Father, I admit today that there are times that I have not been truthful. Maybe I've said things that what I thought others wanted to hear. I wanted to protect my image. But Lord, I would pray today that whether it's what things, I words I've said to my spouse, I've been holding up to them. I've been working on them to be better at it. And Lord, if I found myself struggling with the pains of divorce, Lord, I need your healing power. I need to see the truth. I need to admit truth. I need to see what you see of me and help me to walk in the light of your word. Thank you today, Lord, for helping us to see that this is how you want us to live life because there is an importance in every word I say because you see it. You know it. Just help me to always be honest. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, for this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together. And John 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The words of God are the words that will never fail. The oath that's never broken. So church, let's lean in to hear that voice, to listen to those words the spirit from our great God this morning. Spirit of the living
Let's sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, it's easy for us to see the faults of everybody else, but not see our own. That's why this prayer is a good prayer for us to pray this week. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lord, help me to see if, there, if I'm doing things or saying things that is not of integrity. If this morning you feel the pain, struggle, divorce, please call the office this week. We'd love to be able to talk with you and pray with you and encourage you. If you just need someone to pray with you today, there will be someone in, the, in the, our discovery room that's to my left and your right that would be willing to pray for you. And I'm also down here in front would be more than happy to pray with you that you will allow God to do a fresh new work in your life. God bless you. You're dismissed.